Hello, this is the December 8th audio version of the newsletter New Things Under the Sun. Uh, this week, how bad is publish or perish for the quality of science? So how do we end up in a situation where so many scientific papers don't rep replicate? Replication isn't the only thing that counts in science, but there are a lot of papers that, you know, if they actually describe a regularity or a causal mechanism in the world, then we should be able to replicate it, and we can't. So how do we get here? One theory, and it's not the only one, but it's the one we're going to talk about this week, is that the publisher-perish system is to blame. So in an influential 2016 paper, Paul Smaldino and Richard McElrath simulated science in action with this simple computer simulation. Their simulation is this highly simplified version of science, but it does capture the contours of some fields pretty well. In their simulation, science is nothing but hypothesis testing, and that's just using statistics, data, etc., to assess whether the data is consistent or inconsistent with various hypotheses. Now, 100 simulated labs in their paper pursue various research strategies and attempt to publish their results. And in this context, what's a research strategy? It's basically just three numbers. It's one, a measure of how much effort you put into each research project. And the trade-off here is that the more effort you put in, the more accurate are your results, but the fewer projects you finish. Number two, it's a number that measures what kind of protocols you use to detect a statistically significant event. And here you can trade off false negatives uh, and false positives. And three, it's the probability that you choose to replicate another lab's findings or just go out and investigate your own novel hypothesis. Now, at the end of each period, labs either finish a project or they don't. And if they do, they get a positive result or they get a null result. And then they then attempt to publish what they get. And then a random set of labs is selected and the oldest one, quote unquote, dies. Over time, the surviving labs accumulate prestige. That's also a number in this simulation. And that prestige is based on their publishing record. Prestige matters because in the simulation, at the end of every period, the simulation selects another set of random labs and the one with the highest prestige spawns a new lab, which follows similar but not identical strategies as its parent. And this is sort of meant to represent how successful researchers propagate their methods via training postdocs who then go on to form their own labs or via imitation of new labs uh, of the methods by labs that have been able to uh, get a prestigious publication record. So the last step of, the, of this is that Smaldino and McElrath have to assume prestige is allocated somehow, and so they assume the following rules. One, positive results are easier to publish than null results. Two, more publications leads to more prestige. It's kind of this uh, publisher-perish idea here. And three, replications aren't as prestigious as novel hypotheses. Now, what happens when you simulate this kind of science? It's not that surprising. Labs that pursue low effort strategies that adopt protocols conducive to lots of false positives, those labs publish more often than those that try to do things, you know, quote unquote, right. So let's call this kind of research sloppy science. Now note that it may well be that these labs that are doing sloppy science really believe in their research strategy. There's no need for, in this model for labs to be devious. But by publishing more often, these labs become more prestigious, and over time they spawn more labs than those that follow more rigorous strategies. And in time, they come to sort of completely dominate science, and their style of research dominates science. And the result of that is a publication record riddled with false positives and, you know, the replication crisis.
So in short, Smaldino and McElrath suggest the incentive system in science creates selection pressure, selective pressures where people who adopt research strategies that lead to non-replicable work thrive, and then they spread their methods. If these selective pressures don't change, no amount of moral exhortation is going to do better. Anyone who listens to sort of uh, the argument that we should be following a more rigorous kind of start, they're going to be outcompeted by those who ignore it or don't hear the message in the long run. And in fact, Smaldino and McCowarth show that despite warnings about poor methodologies in behavioral science that go back all the way to the 1960s, in 44 literature reviews, they have uh, this nice figure that shows there's been no real increase in the average statistical power of hypothesis tests in the social and behavioral sciences. These simulations suggest it's the incentive system and their effect of these incentives on selection that we currently use that lead to things like the replication crisis. So what if we changed the incentive system? So two recent papers look at the conduct of science for projects that are just about identical, except for the incentives faced by different research groups. So first, let's take a look at this new paper by Hill and Stein. It's from this year, 2020. Smaldino and McElrath basically asserted that the competition for prestige, since only those with the most prestige uh, reproduce their labs, that leads to a reduction in effort per research project, and that in turn leads to inferior work, uh, more likely to get sort of a false positive, for example. Hill and Stein document that this is indeed the case, at least in one specific context. Competition for prestige leads to research strategies that produce inferior work more quickly. They also show that this doesn't have to be the case if you change the incentives of researchers. Now, Hill and Stein study structural biology, where scientists try to discover the 3D structure of proteins using modeling and data from X-ray scattering off protein crystals. And as an aside, this is the same field that was disrupted last week by the announcement that DeepMind's AlphaFold had made this quantum leap in inferring the structure of proteins based on nothing more than DNA sequence papers. But that's not what this paper is about. This paper predates all that. So what makes this setting interesting is this data set that lets Hillenstein measure the effort and quality of research projects unusually well. Structural biology scientists report their work to a centralized database, and they report whenever they take their protein crystals to a synchrotron facility, which is where they obtain their x-ray scattering data. Later, they also submit their final structures to the same database with a timestamp. And by comparing the gap between the receipt of data and the submission of the final protein model, Hillenstein can see how much time the scientists spend analyzing the data. And this is their measure of how much effort scientists put into a research project. The database also includes standardized data on the quality of each structural model. For example, how well does the model match the data? Or what's the resolution of the model? So on. This is a key strength of this data. It's actually possible to quote unquote objectively measure the quality of research outputs. And they use this data to create an index for the so-called quality of research. Now lastly, of course, since scientists report whenever they take their sample to a synchrotron for data, Hillenstein also can see who's working on what proteins. And they can see if there are a lot of scientists working on the same structure. And the relevant incentive that they're investigating is this race for priority. There's a norm in science that the first to publish a finding receives the lion's share of the credit. And there's good reasons for that system, but the priority system can also lead to inefficiency when multiple researchers are working on the same thing, but only the first to publish gets credit. In a best case scenario, 
This race for priority means researchers pour outsized resources into advancing publication by just, say, a few days or, or a few weeks. And there's little social benefit to that effort. In a worst-case scenario, though, researchers might cut corners to get their work out more quickly and to win priority. Hillenstein document that researchers do, in fact, spend less time working with their data to, to build a protein model when there are more rivals working on the same protein at the same time. And they also show that this leads to a measurable decline in the quality of the protein models they eventually come up with. Moreover, based on some rules of thumb about how good a protein model needs to be for it to have useful applications in medical innovation, this quality decline probably does have non-negligible impacts on things non-scientists care about, like developing new drugs. But it actually gets worse. Why do some proteins attract the attention of lots of scientists and others not? That's not random. In fact, Hillenstein provide evidence that the proteins with the most potential, that is the ones that will get cited the most in other academic papers when their structure is eventually found, those are the ones that attract the most researchers as well. How do they do this? Uh, it's a, they use a lasso regression that predicts the percentile citation rank of each protein based on the data that would have been available uh, prior to its structure being discovered. So in short, the most interesting proteins attract the most researchers. And that more intense competition in turn leads these researchers to shorten the time they spend on modeling the protein in an attempt to get priority. And that in turn leads to in the most inferior modeling on the proteins we would like to know the most about. So this is about, you know, one of the downsides of the priority system. And that's a bit different than Smaldino and McElrath, where prestige came from the number of publications one has. However, in Smaldino and McElrath, their simulated labs can die at any moment. And that's, you know, if they get randomly put into a group and they happen to be the oldest. And that means that labs that spawn are the ones who are able to rapidly accrue a sizable publication record. Since if you can't get one fast, you might not live long enough to get one at all. So even though it's the priority system versus the number of publications, it's actually not as different as it seems. Uh, in both cases, one way labs you know, succeed is by cutting back the amount of effort they put into each of their projects. However, academics who are judged on their publication record aren't the only people who are doing structural biology. Structural genomics researchers are a federally funded group of scientists with a mission to provide or to deposit a variety of structures with the goal of obtaining better coverage of the protein folding space and making future structure discovery easier. And that's a quote taken directly from their thing, from Hillenstein's paper. So Hillenstein argued that this group is a lot less motivated by publication than the rest of structural biology. Uh, to take one example, only 20% of the proteins they work on end up with an associated academic paper, and that's as compared to 80% for everybody else in structural biology. So if this group is not driven by publication, we might ask, is the quality of their work any different? And the answer turns out to be yes. Unlike the rest of structural biology, on average, this group is likely to spend more time on proteins with more potential. And while the quality of the models they generate for the highest potential proteins is still actually a little bit lower than low potential ones, the strength of this relationship is much smaller than it is for those chasing publication. So one other recent study provides some further suggestive evidence that different incentives produce different results, or in this case, at least the perception of different results. 
A 2018 paper by Michael Bicard looks at how research produced in academia is viewed by the private sector as compared to research produced by the private sector itself. And here you can be thinking about papers published by scientists who work for businesses. Specifically, he's asking, are patents more likely to cite academic or private sector science? Now, the trouble is that this is going to be an apples to oranges comparison if academia and the private sector focus on different research questions. So, you know, maybe the private sector actually thinks academic research is great, but it's not relevant to private sector needs most of the time. In that case, they might cite private sector research at a really high rate, but still actually prefer academic research whenever they can get it that's relevant. Now, to get around this problem, Bicard identifies 39 cases where the same scientific discovery was made independently by academic and industry scientists. And then he shows that patents tend to disproportionately cite the industry paper on that discovery. He argues that's evidence that the inventors regard academic work skeptically as compared to work that emerges from industry research. To identify those cases of simultaneous discovery, Bicard starts with this assumption that if two papers are consistently cited together in the same parenthetical block, that is a clue that they might refer to the same finding. So he scans the literature and identifies a bunch of sets of papers that are consistently cited together in this way. And once he has them, he finds ones that where one of the authors, you know, all the author group is from academia and another's from industry. And he has this set of 39 studies or 39 discoveries, actually 90 papers. He then goes on to provide further supporting evidence that his system for identifying these simultaneous discoveries works. He shows, for example, that sets of twin papers he locates are really similar when you analyze them with a text analysis algorithm. Uh, they're almost always published within six months of each other, and that they're actually really often published literally back-to-back -back in the same journal. And that's one way that journals acknowledge simultaneous discoveries. So this gives him a nice data set that in theory controls for this question about the quality of the underlying scientific idea and its relevance. It provides a nice avenue for seeing how academic work is perceived relative to work in industry. When an inventor builds on the scientific discovery and he seeks a patent, they can, in principle, cite either paper, the academic or the industry one, since both describe the same discovery. But he finds, Picard finds, that papers that emerge from academia are 23% less likely to be cited by patents than an industry paper on the same discovery. That preference for industry research could reflect lots of different things. But Picard goes on to interview 48 scientists and inventors about all this. And the inventors consistently say things like the following from a senior scientist at a biotechnology firm. And this is, I'm quoting here. The principle that I follow is that in academia, the end game is to get the paper published in as high a profile journal as possible. In industry, the end game is not to get a paper published. The end game is getting a drug approved. It's much, much, much harder, okay? Many, many more hurdles along the way. And so it's a much higher bar, higher standards, because every error or every piece of fraud along the way, the end game is going to fail. It's not going to work. Therefore, I have more faith in what industry puts out there as a publication. And now I'm done quoting. So to sum up, we've got evidence that non-academic consumers of science pay more attention to the results that come from outside academia with some qualitative evidence that that's actually because academic science is viewed as lower quality. We've also got good data about one particular discipline, structural biology, that publication incentives lead to measurably worse outcomes. 
I do wish we had more evidence to go on, but so far what we have is consistent with the simple notion that different incentives do seem to get different results. And that's in a way that just simple moral exhortation to do better doesn't seem to work. But maybe you already believed incentives matter. Most of us do, especially if we're economists. In that case, one nice thing about these papers is they provide a sense of the magnitude of how bad academic incentives screw up science. And from my perspective, the magnitudes are large enough that we should try to improve the incentives we have, but they're not so large that I think science is irredeemably broken or something. Hill and Stein find the impact of priority races reduces research time from something like 1.9 years to 1.7 years, not from 1.9 years to something like, I don't know, half a year. And though the quality of the models generated is worse, Hillenstein also find that in subsequent years, better structure models eventually become available for proteins with high potential. It's just that there's a significant cost in terms of duplicated research to get there. And even though inventors express skepticism towards academic research, they still cite it at pretty high rates. So we have a system that on the whole continues to produce useful stuff, at least I think. But I agree that it could certainly be better. Thanks for listening. And now it's time for the standard end of the episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation and accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.